Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Coming up next on the Leverboard Sailing Podcast. Well, insurance companies definitely have something to say about that. And so here I just asked that question, number of years after which rigging must be replaced. And this answer comes from the largest uh, Canadian insurer of offshore boats. And he says, 10 years or any resulting damage from the failure of rigging uh, is excluded. So we can insure the boat, but not if the rig is more than 10 years old. Welcome to the podcast. I am your host, Annika. On the Liveaboard Sailing Podcast, I chat with awesome people who live, work, and travel on their sailboats. My guests share inspiring stories and real-life advice about the lifestyle so that you and I can be better prepared for our sailing adventures. This week, it's time for a deep dive into all things insurance. This episode will cover a high-level overview of the current insurance market, what exactly do insurance companies require from first-time boat owners, and how do we make ourselves and our boats more insurable? My guest is John Neal from Mahina Offshore Services, and he reached out to a number of insurance companies in different countries with a list of questions we put together, so the answers are coming straight from the insurance companies. And of course, since John is a boat consultant, we do talk about buying a sailboat and what we should look out for to make sure we don't buy a boat that turns out to be uninsurable. John also gives some advice on how to find a boat in this challenging market and why we should consider insurance implications before we seal the deal on the boat. So lots of good information in this interview. Let's get started. Welcome back to the podcast, John. Great to have you back. And as a bit of a background for anyone listening, John, you've been helping Adam and I with some of the boats that we've looked at and given advice to us in terms of what to look out for and 
as usual, there has been a lot that I have not been aware of. So insurance specifically has already come up a few times. And you have pointed out some features on the boats or their equipment that insurance companies would care about. But let's dive into insurance to start with. So earlier you mentioned to me that there have been some changes in the insurance market in general. So what is the high level overview of the insurance market for cruisers right now? Well, when I took off in 1974 to go cruising on my Alban Vega 27, I was able to get insurance through State Farm, which my family had used forever and which I used for my car. That's all. I didn't have a home then. And um, they had no territory limits at all. And so it was worldwide coverage. I could not believe that. And it was it's a really high quality level of insurance. Well, since then, I've uh, starting in 1976, I've helped about 11,000 people find their boat and take off on their dream as a consultant. And I have been aware that the insurance market for offshore cruisers has been kind of dodgy. And what I've seen over the last 46 years is companies come in, offer extensive coverage at really reasonable rates for a couple years and then drop out of the market after they've amassed a bit of um, clients and a, and a portfolio and then sell themselves to someone else. Great example, Boat US, kind of a, I guess it's not a nonprofit, but it was a really good program, super good insurance, the best quality. Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway bought Boat US and then Progressive bought the package for, uh, just very recently. And so all of a sudden everything has changed. Another example, Pantaneous based in Hamburg was the largest insurer worldwide of offshore passage making. A guy named Kerry Wiener started Pantaneous USA, offered fabulous coverage and fabulous packages. And then after two really destructive hurricanes in the Caribbean dropped offshore completely as did the parent company in Hamburg. And so lots of people out cruising around the world all of a sudden went to renew their policies with Pantaneous, which they'd had for years. And they said, sorry, we're not in that market anymore at all. Lloyd's of London, the largest insurer in the world, basically has dropped out of marine insurance because of horrendous losses. And so uh, I just heard yesterday that there is a guy who is putting together a proposal and package for Lloyd's, and that may be an option starting again. I've just seen this cycle where companies come into the market, offer something that sounds too good to be true, and then they are either bankrupt, out of business, or history fairly soon. And I just wanted to read one quote from um, one of the larger insurers in the Caribbean East Coast area, and she's actually Canadian dual citizen and US. And what she said is that marine assurances have basically been running at a loss and unsustainable. And she's totally, completely right in that vein. And so what I see now are my clients new to cruising, like you and Adam, buy the boat. And then the insurance is almost an afterthought because it's always been obtainable. And all of a sudden they get a slap in the face of reality and find out they are uninsurable, period. And so, well, when you're cruising on a $12,000 boat like I was, 
you don't worry about that. Although now every marina basically in the world and most countries, including all of the European Union, Mexico, etc., require at least third-party liability insurance. It's not an option. They won't let you in their waters. And so things have changed a lot. And the challenge is finding a solution. And so the first thing is now insurance companies are requiring almost across the board three, I'll just quote it, three years prior ownership of similar hull style, meaning catamaran or monohull, and a similar size within 10 feet in similar waters that you want to be insured for. So it's kind of a catch-22. Experience may supplement ownership if it meets this criteria, but first-time boat owners should be prepared for a captain warranty that varies between a skill set of 50 hours with a captain all the way up to an entire year with a paid licensed captain on board. Well, that's a deal breaker for most people. Well, so this agent is saying um, something that is more severe than others. So out of London, they said they were more... Uh, they were more open. They said, uh, so I said, what do your underwriters require in terms of sailing and boat ownership experience? And they say, ideally a copy of your sailing CV for the boat and you and your crew. If we can show insurers that you know what to do when the unexpected happens, that really helps. So, and let's see out of Vancouver, the major insurer for offshore boats there says, Local underwriters are considering a jump in length of more than 10 to 15 feet substantial and maybe denied terms. And so, unfortunately, this is kind of making the whole scenario longer. You need to have a boat that you start learning on. It may not be the boat that you sail around the world, but they're saying you need to have boat ownership. They say three years. Uh, I think that that is actually not that set in concrete. So if you've had a boat, the whole deal is what I'm seeing now, get simple insurance. Don't worry about getting insurance to sail around the world. Get insurance for sailing in your local home waters. And then after you've had that for a year or two years, then apply for long distance. And for local insurance, the best options, I don't know about Canada, unfortunately, but the best options for the U.S. without exception are State Farm. And then second place would be Progressive. So I would say that if your listeners are a couple years out from going cruising before they sell their home and their cars and everything, switch to State Farm for everything. And then the transition for boat insurance is seamless and the requirements are lower than anyone else's. And State Farm, if you've ever looked at insurance ratings, is a super company and has been for a hundred years, you know, just really high quality. They're not going to try and weasel out of payments, which is kind of historic. Um, and then progressive, progressive is the other option. Progressive just two months ago, stopped working through brokers. And so the only way to get progressive is to go to progressive.com, click on other insurance, boat insurance. And I just did this to get a, to get a quote. And the quote I received, I just put in a Catalina 400, 40-foot Catalina, value of $180,000, and the cost per year was 1%, so $1,800 a year. And that's for 125 miles offshore, coastwise, uh, U.S. and Canada. So it's actually pretty darn good insurance. 
Um, how are they at paying out? I think they're okay. I haven't heard any horror stories. So those are the two simplest takeaways. We get into uh, more, when you get ready to go offshore, it gets far more complicated and it's constantly changing. It's a really fluid thing, but there are some, about three underwriters worldwide that are solid and safe and um, you can uh, depend on. You just have to qualify. And they, their their bar has gotten higher and higher as their losses have been huge. So anyway, I hope that's that's a really long answer. That had a lot of information. Uh, thank you for sharing all of that. So if I'm unpacking that a little bit, so basically try to get, you know, a, start with a smaller, simpler boat and likely try to you know, we said about 10 feet difference. So don't buy a 20 foot boat and then try to buy a 40 foot boat, a 45 foot boat in a different region. So you're in the Pacific Northwest and you're 25 foot trying to go to the Caribbean on a catamaran and trying to get insurance for that. That's going to be almost a moot point. So it's sort of like a, uh, there's a bit of a path that you have to follow, but it's very interesting to know and very useful to know that insurance is kind of something we have to plan for. Like you said, you can't just buy a boat and then think about it. You have to kind of make some preparations in terms of training or or things like that. So very interesting also having a captain on board. Uh, if it was 50 hours or something, sure, that's like a week or give or take. So that might make sense. Or I'm sure there's something if you've done formal training, something like that might hopefully help as well. Well, that's a really good point. And I brought up the formal training thing. And let me just tell you what we hear out of London. Insurers use a combination of experience and qualifications in assessing risk. So try to show that you're as prepared as possible, including taking the right courses. And don't forget the importance of deductible. If you won't make smaller claims, ask for a higher deductible. It makes you a better risk if you're only looking to cover significant and catastrophic losses. So I would say always ask on Mahina TRE3, the Halberg Grassley 40 six I just sold in New Zealand, I had um, $10,000 coverage generally and $20,000 coverage on ocean passages. And that saved me thousands of dollars a year. So one of the things that they're asked that they're, I say, what can you do to lower your rates? And they say, don't make claims. So if you lose your dinghy, if your dinghy gets stolen, just swallow that. Um, but it makes, uh, yeah. So here's out of uh, another major insurer. I said, what can customers do to lower their renewal rates after first year coverage, um, i.e. training, captain's license, yacht master certificate. And he says all of the above and remain claims free. So just like in your car, if somebody bumps the fender and you get a little ding, you could put in a claim, but it might be cost effective just to, Forget about the ding or pay for it. To be yeah, exactly. So a little bit of strategy there, like don't claim for every little thing. If it's not financially significant, maybe just uh, absorb that cost yourself and save your insurance for something when you actually truly need it for, for something more serious. So those are really good tips for somebody who is trying to be a first-time boat owner and, and really trying to be worthy of an <laughs> insurance. May I just add another point? Yeah, please. This comes from uh, one of the top insurers on the East Coast based in Newport, Rhode Island. And for that same question of what can customers do to lower their 
renewal rates after first year coverage. He says, courses and credentials do not tend to provide any real rate reduction. However, courses like your training, meaning the sale training, offshore sale training I offer, and credentials are important to an applicant who has minimal ownership or is moving up in size from prior ownership that is more than 10 to 12 feet. The best way to reduce premium, so this is East Coast and Caribbean, the best way to reduce premium is to carefully consider June to November primary vessel location. Only purchase, purchase the navigation limits you need. Insure the boat for a realistic fair market value. Do not over-insure. And so I'm hearing that also from the lead insurer in Vancouver. He says, East Coast, U.S., Bahamas to Grenada, and also now in Guatemala, navigation can expect to have have to haul their vessels out for the hurricane season, June to November, in order to obtain any type of insurance. So that is um, Markel, which is the only U.S. insurer for offshore and is a best A-plus rated insurer and large underwriter. They have that now in place. Boat has to be out of the water. Before, they said you have to have a plan and the ability and a guarantee from a boatyard to haul the boat out. But now they're saying it has to be out of the water, period, June to November. Yeah, that's a, that's a long time. That's almost half the year. So uh, things are different. But so, Annika, a lot of cruisers do what I've done for the last 49 years, and that is do seasonal cruising. During hurricane season, they come back and see family, go skiing, go to work. And then because the insurance has never been valid for cruising during cyclone or hurricane season. Uh, it's required you to be in a safe spot. And it's definitely the same story in the Pacific. Yeah, and certainly thinking about the East Coast, it almost sounds like you have to come up to Canada for those those months. So I'll, I'll start promoting Canada now. It's a great destination. <laughs> Not quite all the way to Canada, but they have a, um, you need to get, I think it's above Georgia. You just need to get yeah. up a ways on the coast or have, have the boat out of the water. And so, yeah, it makes Canadian Maritimes very attractive, uh, which I, I've been dying to cruise anyway. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All right, that is, is really good information. And again, something to take into consideration when making all these cruising plans and, and where to get started and, and all these things, because, you know, the, the storms, like you mentioned, they've probably been a little more frequent uh, in recent years. So insurance companies have gotten some hits and, they went out of the business. So um, I guess climate change to blame for this one too then. <laughs> it actually truly is. Jimmy Cornell first came out with that. Jimmy Cornell's the guy who wrote World Cruising Routes, the, the Bible of passage planning. And he said that in an article in Yachting World two years ago, that climate change has resulted in longer and more severe hurricane cyclone seasons. And at the time he said that, I, I thought, well, really? But after watching the last two years and doing historical research on it, he is totally right. And so what happens now is that not only is, are the storm seasons longer, but the earlier and later storms are more severe. And so you can't push the edge of hurricane season. That's just something that's, and the insurance companies dictate that. They read Jimmy Cornell's dates that he says when you need to be up north or south of certain latitudes and uh, that's how they write their policies 
Yeah, exactly. That's very interesting. And uh, like I said, something to think about when when making all these uh, grand plans. But um, if we go back to sort of boat shopping, and I'm curious about the boat's age, because I've talked to a few guests in the podcast who've actually, they bought an older boat from the mid 80s or early 80s, or even 70s. And they've said they actually had a lot of trouble getting insurance because their boat was over 25 years old. So what do you know about this? Uh, this sounds uh, slightly alarming. Well, it is. And so I have asked all these companies that specific question and let me just read i'll just grab one and read it this is from gallery which is the largest insurer in the u.s and they okay what are your underwriter age of boat cutoffs 10 15 or 20 years uh, gallery actually said no cutoffs but i'm hearing 10 years 15 years and one insurer even said 40 years <laughs> which was uh, th okay, here it is. Uh, each company has different age cutoffs, but generally, generally, unless a boat is surveyed in above average condition, there is little appetite for a vessel over about 35 to 40 years. Well, that's um, kind of unusual because, uh, well, here's what another one says. A lot of carriers would like to see 25 years or newer that tends to be a sweet spot, but we do have carriers that will entertain old boats as well. The problem is the carriers that will entertain older boats won't do them offshore. And so newer, I've said this for, probably said it in the original podcast I did with you, but I've said it to customers for a lot of years, newer is better. And so if you had a choice of buying a 25 year old, really solid boat, let's say an old Valiant 40, or an old Pacific Seacraft 37, Creelock 37, or a newer boat that was not as stoutly built, let's say a Catalina, Catalina 400, um, the newer boat would be a better deal because it would be lower cost of ownership and you would have a much higher chance of actually going cruising. If you buy a 25 or 30 or 40 year old boat, the chance of that hasn't been fully refit, 100% cost of purchase put into the refit. If you buy an older boat, the chance of you actually going cruising from my having worked with 10,000 people over the last 46 years is way less than 30%. It's just overwhelming and it's staggering. The cost of rebuilding a 30-year-old boat is staggering. When you get into replacing engines, rigging, sails, electronics, frequently tanks, wiring, rudder, you, everything on a boat has a lifespan. I'm a pilot and on airplanes, we have TBOs, times that are specified by the government that components must be replaced or rebuilt. We don't have that in the boat. But I just went through the lot, the Mahina Tiari 3. I owned for 23 years. I sailed it 230,000 miles, which is equivalent of nine times around the world, frequently in high latitudes. Uh, to the edge of the ice um, above Russia and Norway, to the edge of the ice in Antarctica. And over that time, I did two major refits, one at 10 years and 100,000 miles, and one at 20 years and 200,000 miles. The 10-year refit cost $60,000. The 20-year refit cost $160,000 and wasn't cosmetic. Those were structural things, repowering, re-rigging, up in the rudder, all these things. And so the cost of 
maintaining an older boat is something that very few people consider. Yeah, that's a really good point as well. And it's interesting to contrast that with the insurance. Like that's another sort of added hurdle. Like, okay, if you want a boat from the early 80s, you don't have experience, you're going to have trouble getting insurance because you don't have experience and because the boat is old. And also it might be more than you can take on to actually make the boat seaworthy. So that's a lot to consider. So I'm very grateful that I have you to help me out with all of this. So. <laughs> well, it's it's a change in my philosophy Just that's really just come in the last couple of years. And it's based on the fact that there have been very few offshore capable boats built in the last 15 years. The companies that built them, for the most part, are bankrupt and disappeared and gone. We look in North America. How many country companies are there building offshore quality boats? Boats like the Waterlines built in Sydney, BC. Brilliant steel boats. Boats like the Scepters built in Vancouver. High quality, way ahead of their time boats. Well, there, there aren't any. I mean, in, in North America, there's uh, Island Packet in Florida, which is, has been resurrected from the dead and is doing amazingly well. Great boats, better designs, better improved construction techniques. There's Island Packet. Who else is there? Yeah, it's a short list. It's a really short list. And unfortunately, it's not going to get any better. And so I'm actually seeing people, more people buying new boats and the waiting list for quality new boats like Garcia, Island Packet, um, Halbergrassi, Oyster, their waiting lists are frequently more than three years long now. And so, yeah, it's uh, it's boom times for the builders. It's never been better. Well, that's interesting. I was actually going to ask you about the sort of the market in general, because, you know, with the pandemic, it seemed like everybody was buying boats and, and there was not a lot of inventory available, if you will. Do you still find that to be the case? Or do you find that people are now regretting their decisions and now selling, trying to sell their impulse purchases? Well, Annika, for you and Adam, I wish the latter was true. But if anything, it continues to accelerate. And um, it's a mainly an issue of demographics. There are a lot of people who have, it's democratic demographics and it's um, financial situation. There are a lot of people who have worked very hard and saved really diligently and are definitely ready to get out of Dodge, ready for an adventure. And gosh, I'm one of them. I understand that completely. And it's a supply and demand issue completely and totally. Yeah, it's just more demand. More people want to have adventures than want to just sit sit and plug away. No, that's true. And then work life is changing. Remote work is uh, it's the norm. It's, it's probably more common still. And now a lot of companies have decided to stick with that. So it doesn't matter if you're in Ottawa or whether you're in the Bahamas. Exactly. Same time zone. Well, and would, where would you rather be? Would you rather be in Ottawa or Vancouver or... <laughs> Mexico, Bahamas, and so if it's if there's no snow and minus degrees, that's where I would rather be. <laughs> <laughs> what is it about cold weather that just pushes people to go cruising? It's amazing. <laughs> exactly. Well, I wanted to touch on another point that you referenced earlier. You mentioned uh, rigging and sails, and if you're doing a refit and all that, and you pointed out a couple of those that I've. Uh, we've discussed and it's like, yeah, great boat, but you, it needs new rigging. So what's uh, what's your thought on that? What, what are the insurance companies' thoughts on that? Because they seem to have something to say about those uh, those things as well. 
Well, insurance companies definitely have something to say about that. And so here I just asked that question, number of years after which rigging must be replaced. And this answer comes from the largest uh, Canadian insurer of offshore boats. And he says, 10 years or any resulting damage from the failure of rigging uh, is excluded. So we can insure the boat, but not if the rig is more than 10 years old. Others are more vague. Some will just say, we uh, may request a rig survey and we will go on what the survey states. But almost, um, it's a cost-benefit analysis, Annika. If, if the rig goes, it's a deal breaker for your cruise. If you lose the mast and the cost of rigging is so small in terms of the overall picture. So, you know, on a 40 foot boat, maybe 8,000 bucks. It's a tough pill to swallow, but it's, um, so the insurance companies are looking at your overall risk, the risk that you present. And if you are presenting yourself as a person who is cautious, who is doing everything possible to mitigate and ameliorate risk by replacing rigging, new electronics, um, being very specific about your plans in terms of storm seasons, there's a much better chance you are insurable. And so yet you just pretty much have to plan on 10 years for the rig. Exactly. Okay. And then we're talking about complete replacement, right? Not maintaining, not inspecting, we're just all, all new. You know, it's, it's the uh, weakest link scenario. And so if you have a turnbuckle or a cotter pin break, you lose the mast. And so when you replace rigging, you really want to replace everything. And I always got a laugh out of uh, Brian Toss. He was a, a pretty famous rigger. He's written several books. He's done rigging for Hollywood, um, all kinds of stuff. And he was a big proponent of do-it-yourself rigging. Norseman, cast lock, stay lock, uh, mechanical terminals that you could use giant wrenches and put together. And he was saying, well, then you can reuse the fittings. You just replace the wire and reuse the fittings. And it's like, no, stainless steel work hardens and becomes brittle. You want to replace everything, not just the wire. The wire is actually rarely the culprit when the mass comes tumbling down. With rod rigging, it's different, but with stainless steel one by 19 wire, we have 19 wires. And if one strand or two strands break, they are very visible and very painful if you rub your hand against them. For this reason, it's incumbent on you to go aloft to the top of the mast every single time before you make an ocean passage, simply to see if there's any wires sticking out that are gonna catch your hand. Well, you've got lots of warning. With rod, it's one stainless extruded stainless steel piece and there's no warning. And usually what happens is that the head which is just mechanically hammered down, snaps off in its little cup holder, and then the mass comes down. And so um, your replacing the rigging is a really smart idea for your safety and to make you more insurable. Yeah, exactly. And I guess, you know, if you have an idea of the cost, you know, you factor that even if the boat seems that it has an older rigging, then you just take on it to yourself to, to have that organized and then get insurance with brand new rigging. Yes. <laughs> what about sales? Is that the same thing? Uh, are there requirements for sales no. or is that more of a fluid thing? It's not at all. And so that never comes up at all. 
It's one of the comfort factors for the insurance company. If you say we have a new main sale that is specifically offshore spec, um, that's a good thing. But never has an insurance company said you need to replace the sails as well as the rigging. Never have they said you need to replace the motor. But if the motor is 25 or 30 or 35 years old, parts, replacement parts for it become very expensive or unobtainable. That's a Yamar famous thing. I'm sorry, we don't maintain support for that model engine anymore. The engine may be only 15 years old, but so then you are stuck trying to find aftermarket or used parts. They want you to buy a new motor. Fair enough, fair enough. Yeah, that's definitely something to think about as well. Uh, yet another thing to add on the list. <laughs> I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. But speaking of lists, usually when I look at all these boat listings, there is a long list of electronics and navigation equipment and all things. And you mentioned earlier that insurance companies may find it favorable if these are new. But is there, uh, in your experience, how long do these, thi these things last? Is it 10 years? Is it just depends where they've been, how they've been used? Electronics, marine electronics, will I've seen them that are 40 years old and still work. They are not repairable at that age. If you buy a boat that has 15-year-old electronics on the boat and you're on a budget, don't touch them. The issue becomes AIS, Automatic Identification System. After about 15, 12 or 15 years, instruments began to be all coordinated. Oh, what's the right word? They're all linked together. Networked, there we go. And so I'll take Raymarine, for example, because that is my absolute number one recommendation for offshore electronics, simply because of their parts and service support worldwide. Uh, it is so much better than Garmin or BNG that there's no, there's no second place. It's Raymarine for offshore. Well, about 12 or so years ago, They networked everything together using NMEA, and they offered a black box AIS transceiver. The very first one that came out was the Raymarine AIS 350. And so that allowed you to buy a unit for 500 bucks that plugged into the network, and it meant that on your chart plotter, now called multifunction display, you saw not only radar, not only Navionics electronic charts, but you also 
had the ability to overlay ships. And this is huge for your safety. And so the alternative to that, to having everything integrated together, which is without question better, does cost more money, is to buy a standalone AIS. Vector Marine in Auckland, New Zealand makes by far the best standalone AIS. They've just come out with a new version. It's under $1,000. It's a standalone unit. It has very low power draw. It's more sophisticated than any of the black box integrated ones, but it's not necessary. So I would put that as the cutoff point. If you have electronics that, to which you can add chart plotting and AIS into the display, then fabulous don't have to replace things. However, having said that, I just spent, I think I spent 12 grand in Sweden replacing all the electronics, including the autopilot, all of which still worked on Mahina Tiari. They were 20 years old and parts and repair had become difficult. Raymarine being as brilliant as they are for customer service actually went to the junk pile and pulled out some parts and sent them to me without charge for parts that they didn't, that they no longer supported. But at that point, um, the instruments were working, but they were occasionally getting dodgy. The alternator would occasionally, not the alternator, the autopilot would occasionally go wonky without reason, but overall it had been performed brilliantly. I replaced them all. What I found, the new electronics consumed a fraction of the power the old ones did. Everything was more efficient. The new readouts are all multifunction readouts. And so you no longer have a depth sounder, a knot meter, a wind meter. You have multifunction displays, which will display anything, including the AIS input. And so far more flexibility, far larger numbers. Now you being a youngster don't have to worry about visibility from the helm to the instruments. I am not a youngster. I'm going to be 69 years old in March. And so brighter, bigger, better, easier to see, more intuitive, smarter instruments are a joy. They truly are. The new multifunction displays are uh, brilliant in terms of what they will do. The power draw is less. Can I just tell you one cool new device I just saw at the Seattle yes, Lake Show? Yes, please. Well, ICOM's latest VHF combination, GPS combination, AIS receiver, all in one radio. It's called, I think it's called the ICOM 510. It's brilliant because it has an optional $200 remote access microphone, which you would mount in the cockpit. So you mount the fixed mount master VHF at the chart table below. You just mount a spare microphone at the helm. The microphone has a screen on it, which is an AIS, includes an AIS screen. So on passage on the ocean or coastwise, you don't want to leave all the electronics on. The big screen, you might have two if you're really lo loaded with dosh, one at the chart table and one in the cockpit under the dodger. Uh, that screen takes a fair amount of power. It makes a lot of light, even when it's turned down to its dullest mode. But VHF radio on has VHF radio has to be on all the time. Uh, it's a legal requirement on commercial vessels. It should be legal requirement on private vessels as well. So if someone sees you, they can call you and say, hey, we're, you're in our way. Well, anyway, 
The cool thing about this remote mic is all you need to do is just pick it up and look at it every 10 or 20 minutes while you're on watch at night. You don't have to have the big MFD on and you can see if there's a ship within 20 miles. So it's brilliant. So AIS for your safety, having AIS transceiver is at least as important as radar. Radar is brilliant because it shows you ships that don't have AIS turned on and it shows you breakers. There doesn't even have to be land, just breakers will show up. It shows you icebergs, but you don't want to go where it's cold. I know that. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> You're real clear on that. Uh, yeah, so the combination of radar, modern chart plotter, and AIS all integrated into one multifunction display is huge for your safety. I still use and teach with and recommend paper charts as well, but uh, having everything integrated is like, well, it's like having a car. I got a new car after 15 or 17 years, and the new car has a navigation screen. I didn't want it, but it came with a car. Gosh, it's fantastic for finding hard to find places. I'm lousy at navigation on land. Um, and the, the navigation screen on the car, now I use it uh, to find the most efficient way just to go across the island to the beach on the other side. Yeah, exactly. Well, I guess, yeah, the more information you have, it does increase your safety and your awareness of your surroundings. And I did want to touch on the safety items as well. Let's say for someone who's maybe, you know, cruising, island hopping in the Caribbean, so not talking about crossing oceans, but not quite just coastal sailing, weekend sailing, something in between. What are the safety equipment that you want to have or need to have on board? And I don't know whether there is an insurance angle with this, with the life raft and, and their age and, and all of that. But uh, just from your experience, what would you tell people? Is it radar? Do you want AIS? What should people think about when, when preparing for their list of equipment for the boat? Well, let me just read what one of the um, brokers said. Um, she says, discounts may be available for automatic fire suppression. So that's not a big deal. Um, there are, uh, so the cost for a 40 foot boat will be roughly 250 to $350 for an automatic engine room fire extinguisher. This should be required by law, but it's not. It is on commercial vessels. So insurance companies will give you a discount for that. Fume detection. So having, even though it's not required by law, having a um, carbon monoxide uh, detector on the boat. Uh, EPIRBs. Uh, she actually says auxiliary generator, autopilot, GPS radio. Um, and she says camera or theft protection devices, which I had never heard. Okay. Yeah. That might be for larger power boaters, but power boats, but whatever. So insurance companies, that's part of your presenting yourself as a good risk. And so if you're doing safety things like having multiple EPIRBs, emergency radios um, on board, that's showing that you are risk adverse. You're trying to do your job. So what I recommend and what I've done on Mahina Tiari is I bought a small personal locator beacon, <coughs> which is an emergency radio, and had it packed in the life raft. It cost $259 at West Marine. That way, if I had to abandon ship in a rush and didn't have time to grab the grab and go bag, abandon ship kits, I was assured of having emergency communication. 
in a waterproof Pelican case, I packed a VHF waterproof standard Horizon VHF GPS combination that's floating and has a strobe light built into it. I packed an aircraft handheld VHF radio and another GPS. I mean, another, well, actually, yes, a handheld inexpensive GPS, but another EPIRB as well, a, a 406 proper proper marine EPIRB. So proper marine EPIRB is going to cost roughly $500. Personal locator beacon is half that. They both do the same thing. The marine version does it for longer and it does it in colder climates. I think both are important. Right. Yeah. Well, that's already a lot of information again on how can we make ourselves, <laughs> you know, worthy of insurance. And it's, it's a little bit like trying to make uh, I tried to sell myself to the insurance company as a, as a great person to give insurance because I'm not going to screw up and I'm prepared for everything. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly it. That's what you want to do. And so some agents will actually spend time with you and help you just like an employment agency will help you pimp your CV. will say, okay, well, you need to focus on this. You you know, the fact that you've chartered in the areas that you want to cruise and that you want to be insured for, that is a big plus. Uh, the fact that you may not have owned a boat for three years, but your family had one and you grew up sailing and or you've belonged to a sailing club in college and at university and have time on that. These are all important things. All right. Well, let's get back to or continue, I guess, on the boat shopping front. We've talked a little bit about the the market, that it's still not that many boats out there. People like to be buying boats. But uh, just geographically speaking, if there are people in North America who are in a little bit of a similar situation as myself, not currently on either coast, so technically could go anywhere in North America to get started. And looking at Yacht World, everything is in Florida. So yeah. <laughs> if you don't mind where you start cruising, is that just as simple as that? Like, well, yeah, go to Florida. You'll probably get your best deal there. Well, Florida certainly has the most boats, but the insurance companies are saying that Florida is, is by far the most challenging to insure anyone, much less new boaters. They are also saying you have to have the boat out of the water five or six months a year. Boats in Florida tend to be in rougher condition than boats in Vancouver or in Toronto. Saltier, more difficult environment. We do get boats in Florida coming over from Europe, and that's actually been a very good boon to people like you because European cruisers, because of COVID, have had to sell their boats. And so Florida and Annapolis, we've had some really good values on already outfitted, fairly recent year model uh, cruising boats. Um, so Florida, yeah, Florida is definitely to consider, but it's going to be more challenging. Uh, California has few offshore type boats, but lots of boats like Catalina and Beneteau. And so if we're looking for a fairly recent model, Catalina or Beneteau, and in the previous um, podcast, I talked about a series of Beneteaus that are uh, above and beyond the normal and better value and not 25 years old. And so California is good for that. Uh, Great Lakes are, um, are okay. And sometimes boats tend to be better. Boats in the Great Lakes tend to be better because they're only in the water for six months a year. 
Same in New England, same in Scandinavia. Anywhere where the boats are put in heated sheds for the winter and pampered and babied, uh, they're going to be really good values. And so I would say worldwide, I would say England is still a great place. Supply is also narrow there. Scandinavia uh, is a good option. Germany and the Netherlands are great. There are a lot of boats in the Med for sale, probably more for sale there, or at least as many there as in any region worldwide. Um, there are some good values there. There are some great refit yards there. Annika, one of the things you need to remind yourself is that location of the boat is important for refit. If you buy a boat in Greece, Turkey, Trinidad, well, actually Trinidad, there are some good boat yards, um, Greece, Turkey, Thailand, Indonesia, the boat might be a really at a good price, but getting the repairs and the refitting done that needs to be done may cost you three times as much and take three times as long. And so we need to think about support services where we buy the boat, unless we're going to buy it and ship it somewhere. Right. Yeah, that's a really good point, too, because that there's a lot of boats uh, for sale that are usually quite inexpensive in the Caribbean and the smaller islands. But then, you know, it's, it's a bit of a hurdle, obviously, buying a boat in a different country, um, different uh, climate, and now add on to this as well. Maybe you can't get everything done that you want to. So definitely something to keep in mind again. What I'm hearing right now is shipping delays, even in Vancouver, even in Seattle, even in California, even in Annapolis. So you buy a boat and you you need to replace some gear. The gear is not available. It's all backordered. And it's that whole supply chain because of COVID. Um, it's not just the automotive industry. It's definitely the marine industry as well. I was just at uh, Skagit Valley College in just south of Vancouver, actually halfway between Vancouver and Seattle, where I'm teaching a seminar March 12th and 13th. I was talking with the program chairman, and he said that they're having trouble getting things as simple as bolts because they're simply not available. Um, and, and components, things like getting a pump for a water maker or a, a freshwater house circulation pump, things like that. Uh, they're having difficulty. There's a wait list on a lot of stuff. So if you're in Jamaica, you can just imagine if it's hard to get that part in Vancouver or Toronto, it's going to be difficult to impossible in, uh, in an exotic, warm location where you want to be. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Fair enough. Fair enough. So it's all a balance how much of a colder weather <laughs> you want to have um, and then live with. All right. So hoping that you don't have to buy a ton of new parts and do a complete refit. If you're going for a newer boat, you may need financing uh, to supplement your savings, uh, especially if you're someone a little bit younger who hasn't, who's not going after retirement or who kind of wants to do this. Well, I can work from anywhere. I, why, why not go now? So what are your thoughts on financing and any advice on that? Well, Annika, the simplest surefire financing is HELOC, Home Equity Line of Credit. So if you have a home that has uh, value in it, that's the lowest interest rate. It's on a par frequently with uh, a marine loan. Boat loans are really great right now. Super good interest rates. Unfortunately, marine mortgage companies don't want their 
collateral going out of the country, usually, because it's very difficult for them to repo it if you stop making payments. I've seen that happen. And there are actually a very small number of repo men whose job is to go and seize and return boats where people stop making their payments. So that may be something to consider. You could say, well, I'm just not going to tell the bank or the finance company, the lender, that I'm going to take it out of the country. Um, that could be real problematic and could get you in, in deep water. And so this may mean that you will buy a smaller boat that you can pay cash for if you want to go into foreign waters. Yeah, that's an interesting point. And uh, my experience here, I've, I've talked to our bank here in Ottawa, and they kind of had no idea. Um, I feel like I would I would be better off talking to somebody in Vancouver because I had to explain the concept of living on a boat. So they were obviously not, you know, middle of the country. They weren't quite that familiar with, with all the uh, everything that would go with it. But uh, uh, something that did come up, I think, was insurance, though, that they they will want to know that your boat has insurance, right? Yeah. Like, you're not just buying some, some old boat with no insurance. So that's another link there as well. And yet something again to add to the planning, right? So Annika, the best option frequently is to use a marine mortgage broker because they have options, far more options than you know about uh, to present. And so if you get, if you're in Vancouver, there are, marine mortgage brokers that can say, okay, well, here's the, here are the options. This bank or this finance company is right now currently the best. And it's a fluid thing. So I work, uh, and often I shouldn't forget to tell you this, frequently the yacht brokers know what is currently the best option for boat loans. And it, it changes, but in the, um, in the Washington State Northwest area, there are two banks that have uh, loan officers who only do boat loans. And one of them is um, People's Bank and Jennifer Patterson. I just saw her at the Seattle Boat Show. And another is, I think it's called North Cascades Bank. And um, they do awesome job and they will finance liveaboards where normal banks won't. And they know the market and uh, so, Talking with the yacht broker may be a really good way of finding your best loan options. And occasionally, I have heard of uh, mortgage companies that don't care if the boat goes out of the country. So you just need to ask that question. Another thing to remember is that a lot of boat loans, if you say that you're going to be a liveaboard, that knocks you out very quickly. And so I wouldn't make a big deal of that at first. And I wouldn't give up my apartment right away uh, until I got the boat loan. <laughs> once you once you have the loan and once you have the insurance, who cares? Uh, I think you are a better loan risk if you're living on the boat because you see if something's wrong and there's a much less chance of fire or uh, the boat sinking or the boat being damaged or stolen or yeah, yeah, exactly. You're you're there um, monitoring the situation at at all times, so that should should make up for something. So that is uh, an interesting point as well. There's uh, certainly a lot to plan and and prepare. And one thing I did want to talk about as well, you mentioned uh, 
earlier that one of the insurance companies was quite fav- thinking quite favorably if you go get offshore experience yeah. with like expeditions like what you run. So you are going to be doing some traveling, of which I'm a little bit jealous because you'll be going to Scotland and uh, uh, exploring the West Coast, um, Pacific Northwest there uh, this summer. So tell me a little bit about these expeditions. What do you do, who they're meant for, and why do you think the insurance companies favor these sort of experiences, maybe even more than a formal training off your basic sailing course? Well, one of the reasons I started doing this 33 years ago was because people would take the offshore cruising seminar of which I presented 177 since 1976 for 11,000 students. They take that and they say, well, that was really great, but I, I would really like to make sure that I am comfortable crossing oceans before I go and spend $100,000, sell my home, sell our business, quit our jobs and do this. And so that's why I bought Mahina Tiari 2, which was a Halberg Grassley 42 that I sailed 70,000 miles with several thousand students. And so since then, my business has evolved. I had the second boat built in Sweden specifically for expeditions, ran them 23 years on Mahina Tiari 3, the Halberg Grassley 46. And then COVID struck. I had to sell the boat in New Zealand. I sold it to a gentleman from Toronto who is just arriving, hopefully Saturday, to pick up all the gear that goes with the boat that wasn't on the boat. So I have a new sail. I have a new carpet, all all spare electronics for everything on the boat. Well, he's going to come and pick that up. I had to sell the boat. And what I ended up doing was my retirement plan two years early. I planned to sell the boat in um, Victoria or Seattle, when I got back in 2023 from the South Pacific. Instead, I sold it earlier, and I'm doing what I always plan to do in retirement. That is just chartering different offshore boats in different in my favorite parts of the world and taking six students with me for 10-day intensive offshore training expeditions. So I'm doing four uh, in Scotland, in the most difficult, challenging waters of Scotland, starting in open and going all the way up to Shetland, going out to the most isolated islands, uh, St. Kilda, Fair Isle, uh, very challenging places with an excellent boat. And then I'm flying from Scotland to uh, Ketchikan, Alaska, sailing from Ketchikan out to Haida Kwai, the Queen Charlotte Islands, and then to the top end of Vancouver Island, doing a crew change in Port Hardy, and then sailing down the west coast of Vancouver Island, very, very challenging waters, and ending up in Bellingham, and then doing some Bellingham Euclid, third of the way up Vancouver Island and back expeditions. So this gives uh, people 10-day opportunity to fast forward. It's exactly what you need. It's what you and Adam need. It's what your listeners need, not just to make them insurable, but to help them decide if this is really what they want to do. So probably a third of the people who do an ocean passage at the end of it say, thank you very much. I'm going to stick to local waters and chartering. And I've just learned that offshore passage making is more physically demanding and challenging, sleep deprivation being a key component of it, than I ever anticipated. The other two thirds say, fabulous. Now they're taking pictures of everything because when we're going 24 hours a day, you're learning 24 hours a day. You're learning how to sleep. You're learning how to cook at sea because everyone's cooking. You're learning how to navigate. You're captain of the day. 
every six days. Uh, captain of the yeah, captain of the day. So we have a rotating duty roster, just like on a traditional sail training ship. So it's just a massive learning experience. It's fire hose learning. Everything is documented. So uh, just like in the two-day workshop with a 270-page book, I have a 106-page training manual. Everything is documented so that you can use that on your own boat because it might be a year or two or three or four before you're actually out there. So that's it. Yeah, all that though, all of that sounds fantastic. And how many or what kind of experience do you want people to have who are coming on these uh, expeditions? What do you think? A little bit of knowledge of sailing, yeah. not a total newbie, but yeah, yeah, a little something. Yeah, <laughs> taking a sailing course, even if it was twenty years ago. So just um, intermediate sailing skills. I encourage everyone to do a coastal navigation course. It can be online. It can be however, but so that you have the basics. Don't want to start. We're not teach. I'm not teaching sailing. I'm teaching ocean passage making. Yeah, exactly. So there, there is a difference there for sure. Yeah, and so the ten day format works well. Before when I was running Mahina TRI three, it was a uh, the minimum was two weeks and the maximum was five weeks, just depending on where in the world the passage was. And uh, that was definitely brilliant, but I don't have that option. And a lot of people don't have that time, that amount of time. And so the 10 day thing has been incredibly popular, it sold out the last two summers uh, very early on. I still have a few births left, uh, both in Scotland and in BC this year. And um, I'll be doing the same program in Scotland next year. I love Scotland, my family's from there from actually Barra, the southernmost of the Outer Hebrides, a very, very isolated, interesting island. Um, and I'm also going to add the Azores in the oh, middle nice. of the Atlantic next year because it's one of my favorite sailing areas in the world. And every passage in the Azores is an ocean passage because the islands are, uh, there's no protection. And so it's a, and then who knows after that, I might add Tahiti or New Zealand, I don't know, but just, I'm going to do fewer expeditions every year. So it was 11 last year, nine this year, and then probably seven next year. Uh, more time skiing and hiking and camping, <laughs> less time working <laughs> is my retirement plan. Oh, that sounds fantastic. Well, John, thank you so much for all of this advice uh, and guidance. Is there anything that I haven't asked you yet that we should still touch on? Well, yes, there is. And that is current. How do you get a boat in this tight market? And just yesterday, I came across three, actually the last two days, yesterday and the day before, three excellent possibilities, possibly four none of these are listed oh only one of these is listed the one that's listed uh was brought to my attention by clients of mine who want a slightly larger boat it's a morgan 384 which was the last of that series of 382 383 384 designed by a brilliant designer ted brewer it has had some things replaced the price is reasonable it's expensive compared to what it was a year ago. These boats went up 30% in the last 12 months, the average selling price. So I track 20 boats I have for many years, and I just profile those in, in lectures I do at seminars. I'll be at the Toronto and Vancouver boat shows next year, hopefully, if, they are, if there are shows. Uh, but this boat is listed for, I think, $64,000. It's in Olympia, Washington, so it's accessible for Vancouver people as well. 
and it's only been listed for I think three days, so it will sell this week. But good, good option. But then I just uh, heard from a broker who I work with in Sydney, BC, who's actually in Miami at the Miami Show. He just came across. It hasn't actually come to market, but a friend of a friend said Scepter Forty Three built in Vancouver, super awesome offshore boat, will be coming to market in the next few weeks. And then he said as well, a Waterline 47, which is an absolute fabulous boat built in Sydney, BC, steel, hot zinc galvanized hull, so it doesn't rust. It's just um, uh, one of the best possible offshore boats, totally bulletproof boat. That's just coming to market. And so What's happening now is that most boats are sold before they hit Yacht World. And so you need to have people who are looking out for you and uh, will alert you before they hit the market. But there are boats, boats, I have clients buying boats. It's a lot harder and it's taking them a lot longer, but there are some good boats that are coming up. So don't give up. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, not giving up yet at all. And something interesting you mentioned there that boats sell quickly. You mentioned that one boat was listed just a few days ago and you expect it to sell very quickly. Is that sort of, I kind of always thought that boats kind of sit there for a while, but is that changing as well that they'll, they'll go pretty quick? That's definitely changed. There's a boat that's been for sale in Vancouver for 589 days. It's owned by Europeans. I forgot what nationality they are, and um, it needs a bunch of stuff done to it. It's a wood epoxy saturation technique boat. So it's a wooden wood epoxy boat. So that throws up flags in a lot of people's mind, justifiably so. Well, it had no offers on it for 589 days. Now it has two. And uh, I'm advising my clients who made a backup offer on it. The boat, I, I learned, has sat for 589 days without the owners aboard. And so there's already a list of things that the broker discloses that don't work or need to be replaced. And I said, look, forget that boat. If it's sat for that long without the systems being run, it's going to need way more than you want to spend uh, spent on it. So, but yes, so boats that are quality capable boats are going very, very quickly. I know that you are looking at Catalina among other options and Catalinas are like Chevrolets. There are a million of them out there, but try and find a Catalina 36, 38, 40, 42 right now, one that's even one that's 30 years old. I just Googled them on your world and it's like, what happened to them? They've just all been gobbled up. It's just bizarre, but uh, I've never seen anything like this. And I started looking in 1973. So it's an unusual time. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, it certainly helps to have someone like yourself helping us through this whole process. And if anyone who is listening is interested in getting John's help, it's the best way to just get to your website, mahina.com and go under boat consultation and then start from there. Yeah, and don't forget to mention the free book that I have, the ebook, uh, Selecting and Purchasing an Ocean Cruising Sailboat. And it's under consultation. So go to mahina.com consultation. And on that, I have a list that I updated uh, a year ago 
of roughly 300 boats for you to consider from around the world. It's not every single boat, but it's every boat I can think of that I would recommend. You know, one thing that I should mention too is there's a new book that just came out. One of my clients sent it to me. It's written by a surveyor, Todd Duff, D-U-F-F, who lives aboard in the Virgin Islands. And here it is, it's Bargain Boats and Budget Cruising. The art, the fine art of selecting a great boat, outfitting it, living aboard, and cruising it on a minimal budget. Well, it's good, but uh, the real interesting thing is it has a list of about, I'm guessing, 60 boats in the back of it, and it profiles each one uh, and talks about the good and the bad and what you have to look out for as a marine surveyor. Unfortunately, he's got some real crap in here. He has Formosa 41, CT 41, Island Trader 41, etc. Total piece of crap. Built in Taiwan, worthless. They should, if you own one, you won't be able to sell it. But he also has some really good boats that are um, you might not have ever heard of. Bristol 40. Well, yeah, it's a dated boat, but it's very reasonable. He's got Passport 40. That's a boat that a lot of Robert Perry designed. He's got Pearson 424, a real super value boat. Uh, anyway, so Bargain Boats and Budget Cruising by Todd Duff, D-U-F-F, published in right now, 2022, by Seaworthy Publications. So, All right, I will link that and I'll link your book as well. It's definitely been a great resource uh, when I'm browsing Oh Yacht World and I'll see like, I didn't know this brand, I'll see what John said about it in the book, and then I'll then I'll maybe send it to you if you yeah. approved it on the book. <laughs> well, and um, the other thing to mention, Annika, is uh, for those those of your uh, listeners who can't attend the two day hands on cruising workshop that we're doing at the Marine Technical College in Anacortes, if you can't attend that, you can buy the course book. The course book is in its forty fifth edition, and it's two hundred seventy pages of everything you need to. No, for going cruising. It covers sail repair, diesel engine, spare parts, navigation. It's, got, it's, a, it's a Bible and it's been updated 44 times. Oh, wow. Okay. So that's another great resource to to have uh, on hand when, when getting ready and uh, even when cruising, if it's telling you how to repair sails, then you'll need yeah. them when you're out and about. So that's fantastic. Yeah. That's $60 and um, plus postage. Yeah, yeah, that's reasonable. Well, fantastic. John, thank you so much for all this advice and guidance. And I'm probably sure to be sending you boats again. And so I'm sure we'll we'll continue to talk boats later. But thank you so much for sharing all the uh, advice here on the podcast. Thanks, Annika. And, and uh, don't give up hope that there's a boat out there for you and Adam. I hope you took notes. I sure plan on re-listening to this episode once or twice. So much good information that I'm very grateful to have ahead of time before making any costly mistakes. I have linked all the resources that were mentioned in the description, so do check them out to learn more. I mentioned my partner Adam and I are working with John now, and if you want real-time updates on how that is going, you can get those on Patreon, where you can support the show for a few dollars per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash podcast. Next week, it's time to talk about circumnavigation, sailing in the Bahamas, and all sorts of dreamy things. And as usual, in the meantime, you can find me on social media as Liveaboard Sailing Podcast. Bye for now!
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.